This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, good news on the hiring front. We're going to find out about virtual reality for Robinson R-22s. A couple of proposals from the FAA based on aging aircraft issues. And Sean Tucker's Oracle Challenger 3 makes its final journey. Finally, we talk about the midair with the good outcome. Ian, are you ready to do some hangar talk today? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, skies back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. All right, David, our guest this week is a, a young whippersnapper, a 16-year-old who is planning the trip of his short lifetime or anybody's lifetime, really. You're right, Ian. And we had the good fortune of hooking up with Luke Zipkin. We we grabbed him a a couple of weeks ago. Let's let our podcast listeners know that Luke is going to try to make a cross-country journey in a Piper Cub from Goodspeed Airport in Connecticut to Flaybob Airport in Riverside, California. Now, he's only 16 years old, Ian. So the, the solo sign-offs were a question mark, and we got to the bottom of that after we did the interview. Let me let our listeners know the outcome real quick. So Luke is, uh, first of all, uh, we're, we're talking to Luke because he's trying to raise funds for AOPA flight training scholarships and a couple of other charities. So he's, he's got his heart in the right place, and we're always careful about safety. And I asked him about the solo sign-offs because he's not going to be a private pilot yet. Well, his dad, Eric, is a CFI. He'll fly behind Luke in a Cessna 180 for the multiple solo sign-offs. Wow. Okay. All right. So totally legal that, you know, the CFI's going along, checking the planning, and that's a lot of work. That's a lot of paperwork. He's going to, he's not going to be able to use the uh, the logbook entries that are already pre-printed in the back, is he? It's going to need another sheet of paper. <laughs> he's going to need another, yeah, he's going to need a... He's going to need to photocopy a bunch of sheets of paper. It's a 5,000-mile journey the way he's planning it, and that Cub doesn't have an electrical system. He'll tell us all about it. Okay, very cool. So we'll talk to Luke later on. Let's start, though. If Luke is looking for a job 
in aviation. I think, you know, the prospects are good. COVID, the COVID downturn looks like things are uh, maybe in on the, you know, in the rear view. You know, Ian, we've been talking about this off and on for quite some time. The folks that we rely on for this kind of uh, hiring information, Abby Hutter of jsfirm.com and Lewis Smith of FAPA, F-A-P-A dot arrow, they have been bullish on the market for a while, in the hiring market. And they, they both have said, stay the course, hang tight. It's coming back. And it is, Ian. So we're looking at a lot of the major airlines uh, hiring folks. They're bringing pilots back that they've had on furlough. And uh, even some of the programs that we talked about in the past, United's program is coming back to, to get folks on board, you know, kind of get them in the shape of United and mold them to the, their philosophy. So we're looking at substantial hiring in, in the next few months. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Lewis made the point that already FedEx, UPS, Atlas, they've already been hiring. Spirit, I guess, is hiring. I saw an ad today on Facebook, I think, that Air Wisconsin is already bringing back FO signing bonuses. I think I saw that correctly. So, yeah, it definitely seems like like things are looking up in the airline world. They are. Let's just, I'm just going to float a few numbers out because uh, you and I are numbers guys at time. And you brought, you brought up FedEx, UPS, and Atlas Air, which is combination cargo uh, carry and sometimes the people holler but they've uh, added more than 100 pilots to their flight decks really by the end of the the first quarter and we're in the second quarter now and that, as you said spirit joined them already by uh, bringing 24 new pilots aboard in April and in May and 40 more 48 more rather are expected by the end of June and that's just at the top of the list I mean, we're looking at United. Uh, they're recalling about 300 pilots whose classes were deferred because of the pandemic. And that was in basically in their program that they were trying to you know, rally and, and get people aboard on that. And then the United Aviate Academy in Phoenix has a goal of training 100 pilots. It's an inaugural goal, 100 students this year, and a total of 5,000 over the next decade. Yeah, that's impressive. You know, I know Lewis, you know, he always talks about major airline hiring and it, and, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's like, obviously that's sort of the top echelon. And so if they're hiring, you know, they're sort of, they're, they're sucking up from all the regionals and, you know, the single turbine operators and that sort of thing. But I will say that if you are low time, even there, there appear to be more opportunities even now that, uh, that same Facebook group, they're, you know, they're posting some low time opportunities in PC-12s I've seen. I've seen twin Cessna work with like aerial survey. So I think if, you know, if you're willing to move and not make a ton of money, I would say that it's like, even as a, a you know, an entrant to the market, it, it's not a bad time. Indeed. I would like to also add, you know, for, for parents, I'm a parent of a teenager and for parents looking, you know, for some kind of a job uh, career for their kids, now is the time to really be thinking about that, too, because there are some job fairs coming up. JS, JS Firm is going to be back at Air Venture this summer. And FAPA, Lewis Smith's uh, organization, they're having a, a, a virtual future pilot forum this month and a pilot job fair this month. But they return to in-person future pilot forums, which are free and uh, pilot job fairs uh, July 17th in Chicago. So, yeah, we're looking about the return to in-person events as folks are coronavirus protected with vaccines and as the traveling public does whet their appetite for more air travel. 
All right. Very cool. So yeah, keep an eye out, David. You do a great job, I think, of you know covering that on a fairly regular basis on what's going on with hiring. So yeah, keep an eye on the website just to, to get the latest. Well, thank you, Ian. And from that, I'm going to pitch to you about the next topic because you know all about virtual reality and these Ribe R22s. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, this is a really, really cool little device. Well, little device that sort of diminishes, I think, the work that went into creating this thing. I'll say, you know, we're going to chat about it, but you really have to go on and watch the videos because it is incredibly impressive. But, you know, I'm going to sound like a very old man here, but my impression of virtual reality was like, teenagers in basements with really expensive, you know, bulky headsets and hand controllers and, you know, playing, yeah. I don't know, first person shooter <laughs> games or whatever. But, and so when people would say, oh, virtual reality for training, it's like, I didn't really see the utility, but VRM Switzerland, a company obviously based in Switzerland has, they said, certified the world's first virtual reality training device. And it's for the R22, as you mentioned, this thing is incredible. It is, it's not the sort of, you know, computer game, pretend that you're fighting somebody or whatever. I mean, this thing, the way that it integrates your real motions with the simulated motions, I I just found fascinating. So it it creates an avatar, basically. It watches what you do, creates an avatar, and also you sit in a a full mock-up R22 cockpit that you can sit there and actually touch and manipulate dials, buttons, whatever, all virtually. The di- the dials and the controls, the flight surfaces. Oh, well, not the surfaces, but the controls. So, so Ian. So, I've only had a couple of hours in a, in a helicopter. A couple of hours mm-hmm. of training. You're a helicopter pilot. Now, it's like this. The one thing you can't do uh, when you're flying a helicopter is basically fly the helicopter, scratch your belly, <laughs> and yeah, pat right. your head at the right. same That's time. The hard part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so to tell uh, tell folks who are not helicopter pilots, you know, really how how much of an advance this is because it is so tricky to control even like a small helicopter like the R22 is is pretty twitchy. It is. So what what does virtual reality give us as far as, you know, experience or, or, or like, you know, how does it prepare us better, basically? Yeah, well, I think there, you know, potentially there could be a lot of advantages. I mean, you know, one is that it, it really a lot of the training, especially the, you know, sort of beginning training is learning to hover and doing auto rotations. Auto rotations are kind of procedures based. So you have to like drill in the procedures, you have to act quickly. And and often people train them close to the ground. And so it can be a really high stress training environment, I think for instructor and student. Especially, especially if you get it wrong. Yeah, right. That's right. So to take some of that stress out of it and be able to do it in the sim, I think is really big. And hovering is obviously hard because, you know, you're working in those three dimensions. And so it's often the way they'll train it is it's like, okay, first you're allowed to use the anti-torque pedals and then you're allowed to use the cyclic and then you're allowed to use the collective, you know, and then try and bring it all together. But with VR, they've engineered something into the system. It's a motion platform where the computer, almost like an electronic stability, an adaptive electronic stability, the computer will give you more free range of motion and, and provide limits. And then as you get better, the system is, you know, can be sort of downgraded. So basically it, it adapts as you learn to take less and less control as maybe, you know, a really experienced instructor might be able to do. So really as the pilot gains experience, the tolerances are tighter is what it sounds like. Yeah. Basically it, it lets the pilot take more control of the sim, which is just a really smart idea. The other thing that they, that they've done with the instructor station is 
as a CFI, you're you're always, you know, you can watch the outcome of the student's progress, but you can't actually see what the student sees, right? But here, because of the VR device, you can actually watch what the student is watching. And so Oh, how cool. It's yeah. very cool. So you can sit there and it's like, and if you see that every time your student is, you know, on an auto rotation, they're looking at uh, you know, whatever, they're looking behind them. I don't know, something stupid. It's like, hey, wait a second. You know, it's like I told you I want you to look straight at rotor RPM first or, you know, whatever the case may be. So I see. I see. Yeah. I totally understand because I'm in the midst of uh, instrument flight training, as you and I have talked about on the podcast. Perfect for that. Yeah. yeah. And I've, I've been using a lot of simulator time with my instructor, Keith Wesson. Even just last night, uh, he was watching me do some holds and approaches. And he said, David, I can tell you're not looking at the artificial horizon. Your eyes are going more to the to the Garmin you know, to stay on course, he goes, but your concentration needs to be front and center in the middle. So I can totally understand how this would help out. And, you know, anything we could do to save a couple of bucks and do it on the ground and do it more safely is definitely is definitely the way to go. Yeah, that's right. And so this thing, EASA, it's only certified in Europe right now, but you get five hours towards a private and, and up to 20 for a commercial. So EASA obviously sees a lot of benefits with the training and it's cheaper than in the helicopter they say so i I think it's a win-win very cool stuff well keep us posted on vr and helicopters across the board ian because that is one of your specialties and you have reported on that quite a bit thanks again for updating us. yeah that's right so hey from new technology to maybe some old technology aging airplane issues you know this is just going to keep happening more and more the the FAA is proposing that the Cardinal, the 177, will join the Cessna 210 and will expand the t- list of 210s that will be required to have SPAR inspections. And this is via an eddy current inspection, Ian. So it's really a non-degrading structural inspection. That can be accomplished, you know, it depends on how many aviation AMUs you call minimal. You know, yeah, right. an AMU is a thousand <laughs> bucks in, in my mind. Yes. But, you know, the 177 and the 206, they, they share that same type of wing configuration without the strut, the cantilever design. I always thought the 177s were sexy airplanes. I know. People love them. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, this, it's the same thing. I mean, we're looking at aircraft that are that are a little bit older. And, uh, but let's not forget that the, the, the flight breakup of that Cessna 210 that sort of refers to all this in the first place was that was a low-altitude survey mission down in Australia, and we just don't know how much fatigue that airplane had been subject to yes. you know, during its ops missions, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, we talked about this a little bit when we recorded the last Ask the A&Ps because Paul knew one of the hosts there, uh, one of the experts, does a lot of 210 work. And so he's done a lot of these spar inspections and he's a big proponent of it. He says, you know, really on these older airplanes, you should eventually get in there, look at the spar, take a good look around. You know, they have very clear processes to be able to mitigate some of the corrosion. And so the problem is that, you know, it, it you got to drop the headliner and it's, it's a big job. So, yeah, it can get a little expensive. Speaking of expensive, we're looking at an estimate of about $1,827 per aircraft. And I need to correct myself. I think I might have mentioned it's Cessna 206 at the beginning of this segment. It's Cessna 210s, as you mentioned. But, you know, other airplanes, Ian, have that same spar issue where you need to keep an eye on it. Although the inspection procedure might be different, the uh, pipers we've recently talked about, the low-wing pipers, 
And I was telling uh, our podcast listeners from way back that Air Coops had this thing called a Swiss cheese inspection where you had to cut holes in the bottom of the, of the wings, you know, covering so that you could look inside it for a visual inspection. So, so this is not a new thing. It's just it's new for these models. Yeah, that's right. So that's a proposed AD still. So there is still time to comment. So you can check on AOPA's website for more info about that. Also, another potential proposed AD, again, kind of an aging aircraft issue, is on some Grumman singles. And and you've got the inside scoop there. A little bit of an inside scoop. I was telling you uh, before um, we got on online to do the podcast, Ian, but you know, when I was looking to buy an airplane back in the day, before I bought my little air coupe, I was really looking at the Grumman's. And one of the knocks against the early Grumman American aircraft was this the delamination of uh, the wing skin. And, they, you know, that airplane was a, a ahead of its time because it was basically a composite uh, wing. And so the glue, known as Purple Passion <laughs> among employees, it basically delaminated parts of the wing. And there was a fix for that, you know, early on. But but I was looking at Tigers and, and Cheetahs and, and even some of the Yankees. And so it, I shied away from that, Ian, because of that back in the day. And this, you know, I'm quoting you information from 2001. So this has been going on for a while, too. And some of the owners, even more recently, uh, were looking at delamination uh, along the, the trailing edge of the wing and the horizontal stabilizer. And the horizontal stabilizer is not something I'd heard about before. Yeah, and they're saying, FAA said in this notice, that they do think that it caused an in-flight loss of control accident, so definitely a serious serious issue. What they did is they examined the accident aircraft and then a subsequent aircraft and found it also on the subsequent. So that that's usually a prescription for an AD. So, so yeah, keep an eye out also for that. David, an airplane that has been under a lot of abuse over its lifetime now gets a good retirement. Sean Tucker's Oracle Challenger 3. You know, Ian, so many people have seen Sean D. Tucker and the red Oracle Challenger 3 biplane. It is so familiar on the air show circuit. And uh, we were all taken aback when Sean Tucker a couple years ago announced that basically he was going to retire the airplane and, in fact, change his air show routine. He was actually looking at more of a, of a multiple ship formation. But the Oracle Challenger 3 biplane made its way finally from California to the Smithsonian National Air and Space Restoration Hangar, Ian, where it's going to be put back together again and made the trip in a truck. And we're looking at that airplane sort of being the harbinger of a general aviation exhibit that is yet to open but is set to open in 2022. So the National Air and Space Museum is actually one of the most popular museums, not just in the United States, but in the world. And there's going to be an entire display that will celebrate general aviation. And they'll use Sean Tucker's airplane hanging upside down, Ian, uh, in the inverted position, basically at the entrance to the new GA wing. And uh, that's going to be exciting stuff when it comes on board. But, But as we said, there was a little bit of a delay about a year or so in the construction process, and things are still coming together for that. Yeah, yeah, it is. The pictures are great. So you got to go online and see them. I mean, them rolling it off the trailer and the red biplane that everybody will recognize. You said, you know, for years, I remember as a kid going to Oshkosh and he was flying the 1-800-COLLECT pits at the time. And 
I remember him, you know, remember 1-800-COLLECT, <laughs> aging myself here. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so it is, it's going to be very, I can't wait to see it uh, in the museum downtown. And, and the pictures are great, like I said, showing them coming into the restoration hangar, the wings off, and, you know, the fuselage being rolled out, so... And he was helping. Yeah, he was helping unload that airplane. Yeah. And, yeah, and right, I, I, right. now I'd be remiss if I didn't let our listeners know the name of the new wing is going to be the Thomas W. Haas. We all fly general aviation exhibit. But Ian, before we leave this, I want to mention two other things about uh, about the Smithsonian. Number one, for folks, you know, as we we talked a little bit about hiring and travel coming back, as people start to travel, they consider Washington D.C. Uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, the Udvar Hazy Center has reopened. And this is where a lot of uh, spectacular aircrafts are already on display. Now, as we record this program and things might change, there were still social distance measures in place, as well as an online ticketing operation to keep people kind of socially distant when they, um, when they came to check that out. But I wanted to let people know that that is uh, open again. And also the Smithsonian announced basically a new exhibit that sort of honors World War II aviation. And uh, that's something new. They had a $10 million donation and an additional $3 million donation. And that will help the World War II aviation exhibit come on board also in 2022. Wow. So is that going to be part of the downtown museum, it sounds like, the original Air and Space Museum? And you're right, Ian, that is going to be at the downtown location, at the flagship location, if you will, of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. And I got to tell you, you know, once uh, the, all the coronavirus uh, procedures are, are faded into the background and they reopen some of those simulators, the full motion simulators where you can get back inside and pretend like you're a fighter jock, I just cannot wait. <laughs> You'll be lining up with the kids, huh? Ready Absolutely. To go. All right, so hey, we want to finish this week with this story that maybe you've heard about. This is just uh, an incredible story. I mean, it's one of these that we rarely hear about, and that is a midair collision with a completely happy ending. Well, I'm glad that there's a happy ending. It's not often that we're able to talk about happy endings like this, Ian, but you're right. At Centennial Airport, which is in the suburbs of Denver, and this is a very busy airport, and people have to realize they have parallel runways which presents its own challenge. You know, I learned to fly at Peachtree to Cab Airport in Atlanta, has, which has parallel runways. But basically, a, a Metro liner uh, aircraft was coming in basically on final, uh, with a, and a Cirrus was in the pattern as well. And the Cirrus, uh, I can't say if it overtook the Metro liner, but it took a chunk out of the Metro liner. And nobody was hurt. The Cirrus pilot pulled a parachute, apparently, and the, the Key Lime Air aircraft, which I am sure our podcast listeners have seen pictures of this by now, was almost, the tail was almost severed on it. It was a miracle that that airplane was still flyable. And that, now they were, within, they were within the airport environment, I would say. They were, they were really close to the airport. Yeah. So that was a, yeah. a highlight. So, yeah. yeah. This, you know, I think obviously just from a high level standpoint, it's an amazing story, but when you get down into it, it's even, I think more interesting. And that is obviously the pictures, you know, where half of the fuselage is missing and the tail stayed intact. Like you said, incredible. The pilot was the only occupant of the uh, Metro liner. And he said on uh, the, they have obviously the tower control the transmissions. And he said, Oh, I think I lost my engine. I'm going to go ahead and land. Well, it was a big bang. It was a big bang. He had uh, no yeah. idea that he right. had been hit. Yep. Landed fine. No problem. 
the Cirrus, you know, the, the uh, apparently the other runway is run by a second, at least at this time of day when it's busy, was run by a second uh, tower frequency. And they had advised the Cirrus pilot, it's like, hey, watch out for traffic. And the guy just said Insight, which we he, he'd given him two call outs. And the guy said Insight, you know, you have to say specifically which one you're talking about. And there, yeah, because there are multiple targets uh, in the air at the same time. And you're right, because it was a parallel runway and, there, and it was bu- busy middle of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think, you know, the tower said basically don't overshoot and then almost immediately said, do you need assistance? So it must have been very quick, you know, from the controller recognizing to the accident. And then, yeah, the shoot, which is reminds me a lot about the accident we had in Frederick with with not a, a happy outcome many years ago. The shoot, uh, the caps, it, that's what made me a believer. It's just a, an incredible system. In, in the Frederick airport environment, and I wasn't up here at the time, but Ian, they were also in the pattern. I mean, it was a, a low-level midair but I don't. Uh, what's what is the difference? What's the basic difference between the loss of life and and not a loss of life in this situation? Is it the luck of the draw or what? I mean, well, that's uh, yeah. I mean, it's luck in that in both accidents, the Cirrus occupants were totally fine. Activated the caps at low level, totally fine. In in this one, the Metroliner pilot, very lucky, totally fine. In the one in Frederick, it was a helicopter, and and those people were not so lucky, unfortunately. But but in in every case, you know, in both cases, the Cirrus pilot and passenger walked away totally unharmed. Amazing. Well, I'm a believer in parachutes as well, Ian, and that's uh, yet another uh, instance where the parachute appears to have, have helped the pilot survive in the Cirrus. And the Metroliner, I mean, I guess we can't say enough good things about that, that Key Lime Air Metroliner. That thing took a licking and kept on ticking. Yes, amazing, amazing stuff. Well, so, hey, yeah, obviously got to go check out those photos online. But, um, David, let's uh, let's talk to Luke. You know, this is uh, just a, a really smart kid, got some great plans, and, and I'm excited to see what happens. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Luke Zipkin of Young Pilots USA. Tell us a little bit about your aviation background, how you got started in flying. Yeah, so I got involved with this. My grandfather was a World War II vet who uh, learned to fly in the GI Bill, and my dad sort of picked up aviation from that, wound up starting uh, an aviation business, and it's just sort of always been a part of my life. I've been extraordinarily lucky in that sense, and I started off flying gliders and uh, now progressing to, to powered airplanes. Well, let's back up to uh, to flying gliders for a minute. I know that you went to Sugarbush Soaring and my daughter Lauren went there too. Tell me a little bit about what it was like flying up in the Green Mountains in a glider, no engine, you know, and I know everyone pitches in to help everyone get off the ground, but what was that experience like? You guys camp, camped out and I know uh, it's just a beautiful place to be. It's really, it's unlike anything else. It's just, you know, there are so many great people there, you know, the environment between the camping and the, and the airplanes and just just the scenery is, you know, it's a really cool place. The mentors that exist there are are really incredible. And that, that was really one of the first places where I felt like there were, you know, really a lot of other young people who were just as into flying as I was. I'm going to put you on the spot for a minute, Luke. Did you make any friendships there that carried on into the future after that week of camping? I did actually. Unfortunately, I don't live very near any of them. 
So, uh, but I saw a couple people. I'd gone up to Sugarbush after the camp and seen people uh, after that. And yeah, we it's you know it's a really great place. There's some really great people there. So you learn a lot about aviation flying a non-powered airplane. Now that teaches you a lot about wind currents. Even my daughter Lauren was telling me when we took off in our Cessna 182, she was telling me to look out for the wind currents over the mountains on this side and uh, the sink rate on that side. Now, what did that teach you a little, you know, about aviation in general, some of the technical details? I think you know, I had sort of uh, gotten into aviation in a, in a really non-technical sense, flying around with my family, really just for fun. And, uh, you know, maybe, you know, my dad hand me the yoke or something like that, you know, and, uh, you know, learning to fly gliders was really, you know, it helped me understand a little bit more about how everything, you know, how, how everything works. I think it's a, a really great way for people to, you know, get involved at first in aviation. And uh, that was, that has really uh, helped me a lot as I, as I progress into powered flying, just understanding those principles. And, and, you know, that really stays with you uh, no matter what you fly. All right. So you were training a little bit in uh, gliders and then you went ahead and, and changed over to powered airplanes. What are you training in right now? What's the aircraft of use that you're commonly in? So right now I'm training in my family's 1946 Piper J3 Cub in Lock Haven Yellow. <laughs> and um, yeah, tailwheel, you know, no electrical system. So probably more similar to gliders than a lot of airplanes that people train in, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. Well, we don't want it to be too similar to gliders. We want that engine to keep running, <laughs> no, Luke. That's no, for I sure. <laughs> yeah, we want to keep the keep the engine running for sure. So it's a 1946 J3 Cub. Now I'm looking on your website, which is youngpilots.org, that you that you started to get young pilots interested in aviation. Is this a 65 horsepower engine, or has it been upgraded? It's an 85 horsepower engine. This okay. one. It was originally a 65, though. Yeah. All right, so it's got a little bit more power. Yeah, and you're so you're learning your you're learning your private pilot skills in a tailwheel airplane. That's right. Yeah, I don't know if we could say it online, but that's badass. <laughs> well, <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. I I, I certainly uh, I hold no judgments against people who fly uh, tricycle gear airplanes, but I really love the Cub. It's a it's a really fun airplane to fly. Well, back in the day, that's what everyone was using. There was no such thing as a tricycle gear airplane, really, until the air coupe came along in about nine in the mid nineteen forties. Yeah. But so the the Josh Cochran from ALTW and I have flown a little bit in a Piper Super Cub, so we know how cramped that could be sometimes in that airplane. But how much fun it is, and how much you learn about aviation because you're not going real fast. You know, things don't, things don't unfold all that quickly, but it does teach you a lot about airplane handling. Tell me about that. You know, it, it's kind of hard to describe. It just seems like sort of the most pure way to, to fly and the mo and it's a, it, it's just, there's really nothing like it. It's, it's kind of hard to describe unless you've done it, except that, you know, just being there with, you know, the, the door open and, and everything it's, uh, you know, it flies, it's a very easy airplane to fly. It's, you know, mechanically very simple. And it's, it's just not like a lot of modern airplanes uh, in, in, in some really good ways, I guess. Yeah. You know, AOPA president Mark Baker has a super cub on float and he says it's the most fun airplane he has. It's, it's his favorite airplane. And he says, there's a lot to it. Just going out there, doing a, a quick pre-flight on the cub. There's not a lot to check out and crank it up and go flying around during sunset. And it's just beautiful. No, it really is. That's absolutely right. Well, cool enough. Well, look, take us from that over to why you started Young Pilots USA. And again, the website is youngpilots.org and you have a special 
flight across the United States that you're planning. Before we get into that, why did you start the organization? So, yeah, I had, like I said, I've, I've been involved. I've been very fortunate to be involved in aviation for, for many years. And uh, for a long time, I wasn't super convinced that there were a lot of young people who were just as interested in, you know, everything that flies as, as I am. And a couple of years back, I got this really great opportunity to go fly gliders up at Sugarbush Soaring in Vermont. And uh, I met a lot of really cool young people there who, who really shared my interest. And that, that sort of reignited, you know, this feeling that there were lots of other young people who, who were interested in this. And what I learned through hanging around that, that operation for a while and getting involved in some other ones as well, was that there are one of the things that these places struggle with that, you know, the pilot community in general struggles with is young people getting involved in aviation. And then because there's not really this community of uh, young people around flying that's quite as big as other age groups, they, they kind of struggle to stay involved. And I felt that, you know, it's really not a very complicated thing to do to build this sort of community for young people who are, who are involved in aviation. And that was really what I set out to do with Young Pilots USA was just sort of to set up this community group where, where people who are, uh, who are into this are, can come together. Well, so far, so good. You've got chapters you know, spanning from Connecticut all the way through Florida at this point, some pending chapters I see. Uh, headed west towards uh, Chicago, south towards Georgia, and not far from you in Great Barrington, uh, Massachusetts, and all. That's pretty cool. How many chapters do you have right now, and what are you looking at ultimately? So we have, I, I mean, I think, the, I think the website says 13 chapters. In terms of active ones, I think it's about half that. We've seen a, a pretty tremendous amount of growth in the last month or so, and just trying to get things up and running. We've been limited a little bit by COVID and by the, the weather where most of our chapters are up in the Northeast. So it's been tough. But right now we look at about seven or eight active chapters where we've got a, usually about a dozen members each in the really active ones. And we, you know, looking at that growing as we get closer to, to really peak flying season. And what airport do you call home? I personally call, well, uh, that's kind of complicated, but home really uh, for me is, is the Goodspeed Airport in, in East Haddam, Connecticut. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's where this cross-country flight is going to originate. Exactly. Yeah. And then you're looking at flying the Cub from that airport, all and, and that's on the East Coast in Connecticut, all the way to California. Yeah. Right. And when are we when are we thinking we're going to take off for that cross country flight? So it all depends on a lot of different things: the weather, the airplane, my mom. But uh, it's at some point, hopefully, in the first week of June this year. Yeah. All right now, I'm going to put you on the spot again, Luke. Now, all right. When I checked online, it looked like you were still a student pilot. Have you already passed that private pilot check ride, or is that coming up? So actually, I'm running this uh, under my student pilot's license on a solo endorsement. Okay. Um, I'm very lucky. My dad's my CFI and the one who owns the airplane. So that makes some of the logistical things a little easier. And I've gone through all the plans with him. And uh, so that's how I'm going to be doing it. Yeah. Well, now, how old are you? I'm 16. So technically, you got to wait till you're 17 to get that private pilot license. That's true. That's true. Yes. Well, when are you going to be 17? In December. So I got a little ways to wait. But, uh, <laughs> you're going to have the most uh, number of hours as a 17 year old private pilot than anyone we've talked to so far. <laughs> but uh, that's going to be great. All right. So now, how long will I mean? How long physically will it take? What I mean? How many days, weeks will it take to get up? Now we're talking the vagaries of weather. We're talking about hopscotching. We got to stop for 
fuel pretty often. We're not going real fast. Are you looking at, a, at like a month or are you looking at more like two weeks? I think the round trip out to California and back, I'm budgeting about 15 to 20 days, depending on weather and preparing for, you know, every eventuality on the, you know, the low side or the high side on that. And that, that pretty much is a getting out there and, and going right back, uh, except for a couple of days out on the West coast. And I'm still trying to work out how much time there should be in between the, in between the legs. But yeah, the, the full round trip, if it were end to end would be about 15, 20 days. Well, now you got to dip your feet in the water uh, over on the Pacific coast once you make it that far. And I mean, you should yeah. take, a, take a few minutes there to enjoy the sights as well. Now, the other that does bring up something pretty important. As a young person, um, we don't want you to run into this, you know, I've got to get their itis kind of a syndrome. What have you done to protect yourself from trying to make these deadlines that might not be doable? I mean, that's really important in the aviation world. Yeah, so... I've been very aware of that. I've, uh, you know, learned a little, a lot more about cross-country flying than I think most people flying J3 Cubs do when they're learning to fly that airplane, just because of what I'm trying to do. And um, I'm trying to limit the amount of time that I spend uh, in the seat every day, just putting a hard, a hard limit on that of about six hours, even though in, during the summer you have a little bit or a lot more time than that. And then, you know, just trying to keep a, a really conscious assessment of the weather and especially in a cub and in the mountains out west, the wind uh, can can be a really big factor. Uh, so trying to fly mainly in the mornings before wind and, and turbulence picks up and just, you know, being aware of all those factors are things that I'm taking into account. And as I look at your route, you're following sort of the backbone of the Appalachians that Josh Cochran and I followed uh, from the northeast uh, to the south when we flew from Maryland to Tennessee for one of the AOPA fly-ins. But then you're swooping pretty far south through Texas. You're you know crossing, you know, going through the meat part of Texas there, right across the middle of it, and taking the southern route over over the mountains out out there, you know, the bottom part of the Rockies. Tell us a little bit about how y'all came up with that route. Well, I, uh, it's kind of funny because whenever I talk to pilots about this, I, I, what people tend to bring up is Flight of Passage, the, the book that came out uh, many years back about you know young people flying cubs across the country, which uh, I'll admit served as a bit of an inspiration. And so that was honestly you know a bit of a starting point of figuring out you know what the capabilities of an airplane like this were around the mountains. I was very fortunate to talk to a couple of pilots who had made the passage between Texas when it starts getting a little bit lower and California in Cubs, Super Cubs. And they all said going, you know, sort of that Southern route through the Southern Rockies is really the best way to go. It's where it's, it's lowest and, um, and safest for, for someone flying a, a little airplane like a Cub. All right. So now you're going to be flying solo in this Cub for most of the way. Yeah. Now is, is, are your folks going to be trying to follow along on the ground or is it just, Hey, Luke's here. You're at the airport at 42 Bravo. See you later in about a month. That is um, <laughs> an active negotiation uh, <laughs> between between my parents and I, uh, and one where I don't have a lot of bargaining power. For sure. <laughs> but uh, good point. I'm, uh, I'm I'm not sure about that right now, but I think it's pretty likely that uh, I'll end up seeing my family at some point along the way. Well, you know, back in the day when a lot of folks were doing cross-country flying, when aviation was pretty much in its infancy, they did have ground support. And a lot of yeah. it was on trains. You know, the, they would follow a railroad, sort of a railroad tracks, and, uh, and spare parts would be on trains in case something happened. Which brings up another another point. So are you 
you're flying VFR, but there is a possibility to fly part of this IFR. I fly over railroads. I follow roads. roads. Yeah. I follow roads, right. So now, how are you How are you planning it? Are you doing it with, with one of the apps like ForeFlight or something like that? Or are you really following roads or, rail, or railways? So I'm planning on doing it with ForeFlight, but I'm also just planning on keeping a lot of charts in the back of the airplane. You know, the, the Cub doesn't have an electrical system. I can't charge an iPad or anything like that when I'm in the airplane. So I'm going to be doubly planning things with uh, with the app and then also uh, just on paper charts. Um, and then I'll also, you know, just before each flag, familiarize myself with the uh, with the roads around the area, <laughs> just in case, you know, to, to navigate and that kind of thing. No, that's a great idea. Then maybe are you going to drop ship some of the charts to airports along the way or just pack them all in a, in a small suitcase or have you figured that out? I'm not sure about that yet, but I think it'll it'll probably end up being carrying most of them since uh, I would just prefer to do some of the planning a couple of days in advance, even if you can't plan for weather and that kind of thing. All right. So, Luke, let's talk a little bit more about some of the some of the foundations and the funds that are going to benefit from this cross-country flight. We talked a little bit earlier about the Gary Sinise Foundation, of course, the AOPA You Can Fly Foundation and the Barstool Fund, which is to help businesses that were affected by COVID-19. Take us through that a little bit. For sure. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to make sure that I did when I started setting this this thing up was just making sure that there was something a little bit bigger, you know, that was going to benefit from from something like this that I know can, can attract a little bit of attention. And I wanted to direct some of that attention towards uh, towards the things that I'm passionate about, that members of my organization are passionate about. And first and foremost, the first thing that came up was scholarships for flight training. Several of our members, leaders in our organization are the recipients of AOPA flight training scholarships, and we wanted to do whatever we could to direct some of that energy uh, back at AOPA. And then we also wanted to make sure that there were some other causes that got, that got some attention. One of those was the Gary Sinise Foundation, and they do a lot of really great work helping out wounded veterans, building homes for them, and really just supporting them in general. And then the third one, which we felt, you know, just a, in a timely way was, was to do what we could to help out small businesses that have been hurt by, by this pandemic in the last year, when maybe they haven't been getting the kind of the business or, or the support otherwise from people that they, that they might. And uh, so we wanted to do whatever we could. And we picked some, some partners that we think are our best uh, positioned to, to make a difference in those areas. Yeah. So AOPA Flight Training Scholarships, it's the Gary Sinise Foundation for Helping Veterans and the Barstool Fund, which some folks might not have heard about, but that's like a grassroots effort to help a lot of small businesses, you know, including restaurants and bars, which have really been hit hard by this because they had to close their doors during the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, that's right. Gotcha. All right, so now tell us a little bit about how you're doing with raising some of the money. I know it's coming in a little bit at a time. What's your goal? What do you want to get out of it? Like, what would be a what would be a good number that we would raise from this and put back into that scholarship or that Gary's Foundation or the Barstool Fund? Well, a hard goal is I, I always risk uh, you know putting myself on the spot here just you know, looking back and saying, oh, no, we, you know, that was too low or too high or, or whatever. But um, the rough cost of the trip is about $5,000. And I, I'd like to raise at least a couple multiples of that, maybe more than that, to make to make a really significant difference in each of these, because the, the any excess funds will be divided evenly between these three causes. So I would say I'd conservatively target 
four or five multiples of, of that. So $25,000, but, you know, I would really, you know, like to, to do whatever we can to, to really blow past that. Yeah. Sure. So basically it's going to cost about $5,000 to get from Connecticut to California. I mean, a lot of that is fuel. Of course, you got to stay in motels along the way. There's some transportation and food involved. And so beyond that, looking to give back about five or $10,000 to each of those three organizations that you hold in high esteem, that seems like a very good goal. It seems like you should be able to get it. Tell us how people can donate to those to that effort real quick. For sure, yeah. So there are a couple different ways, some of which are going to be open for people right now uh, on our website, youngpilots.org, and others of which are, are sort of in the works and will hopefully be up soon. The simplest way, really, we've got a, a portal on our website right now where you can just donate as you know as much or as little as you can we everything's appreciated just through paypal and then also we have a, a foundation that we work with that processes larger trans uh, larger donations and we've got a link for them on our website at youngpilots.org as well in the future there's going to be some other ways to support the trip uh, one of them is you're going to be able to uh, actually sponsor an individual leg uh, either westbound or eastbound and then also we'll be selling uh, merch and that kind of thing hopefully once <laughs> figure out some designs for those. So uh, yeah, there'll be a, a couple different ways to support it and just really appreciate uh, any help I can get would just really be great. Well, you know, when aviators do something for a good cause, usually everyone's out there to try to help out. So I am hoping that you will get a lot of good support for that. Hey, uh, t let's fast forward a little bit. If you don't mind, Luke, you're in high school right now. What do you want to pursue eventually? Like what's your goal for a career? I mean, I love flying. I'd love to fly, you know, for a living at some point. I don't know what, what sort of track would interest me. I'm thinking of going to college for, uh, for business and, you know, getting, you know, involved in, in business and potentially starting my own business. That's something that, you know, my family was always in. I'd like to continue that. But, you know, anything that can keep me around airplanes, really. And there are a lot of options. You know, you don't have to be just a pilot or a mechanic. You could be a meteorologist. You can get involved with, like you said, airport management or any other kind of management uh, possibilities. And, and IT work, you know, comes to mind, you know, working with computers and helping develop new apps, those kind of things. Marketing. I mean, you, you're getting ready to fly across the country. Maybe you'll end up making a little book or something out of that. You know, maybe selling that and get, you get a lot of good experience, a lot of different varieties of uh, businesses. Well, look, you're going to head out from Goodspeed Airport, 42 Bravo, and give us a date again. We're thinking it's going to be in June. We're thinking about June 8th, yeah. Okay. Uh, give or take a couple days, obviously. Okay, June 8th. Now, I, I noticed that you were um, not going to be flying over to AOPA headquarters in Frederick, but that's probably because of uh, logistical reasons. If you were, we'd be out there to greet you. Well, thank you. That's, yeah. Now, how can people follow you on the way? Are you going to um, update the webpage or are you going to have like an inReach or some kind of other way that, that we could follow you on Lifetime or Instagram or anything like that? Yeah, so uh, you can, I mean, the webpage will, will be updated. There will probably be a, uh, a locator or something like that that will interface with the, uh, with the website. And then um, there will be updates on the Instagram uh, for Young Pilots USA. Uh, which is just at Young Pilots USA, and then also on mine, which is at Luke Sipkin. 
And that's, yeah, we'll be updating in a couple different ways. <laughs> Redundancy is key as we're finding out. So a couple different ways for everything. Well, absolutely. Well, I'm hoping that I can wave at you as you're flying not too far from us. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you want to tell us about? I mean, surely there might be something we didn't ask you about. Maybe you're, what you like to do when you're not flying or, uh, or, or what your favorite subjects are in school. Now, I, I think you've kind of covered everything um, and some <laughs> things I didn't think of for sure as well. I, uh, in, t- in terms of other things than flying, there's, uh, th- there's not really anything else that comes close. So, uh, well, it's hard when you're planning a cross country trip like this and you're going to go solo. I mean, there's so much planning involved. I can't even imagine. I planned uh, a trip from Atlanta, Georgia to, to Oshkosh in an air coop uh, back in the day. And that took a while, you know, and that's not even going across the whole country like you're doing. And, uh, you know, this, so there's a lot to it, but you've got good resources at hand. We talked a little bit about some of the apps that you might be using. Don't forget AOPA has some apps that could help you with weather as well. And, uh, and other things, you know, and as fuel is, you know, the AOPA airports directory can help you with fuel and things like that. So you got a lot of resources that we didn't have even just a few years ago. It should make things a little bit easier. Yeah, for sure. There, uh, there are a lot of resources that exist now that did not exist, uh, like you said, even a few years ago and certainly not when, when the cub first came out. Um, and I'll be, I'll be, you know, making good use of all of those and, uh, just trying to keep everything as, as safe and as possible really. Um, and you know, I've got no shame about using all the apps and, and all the, all the resources, um, just to, to make sure that all my planning, uh, make sure, you know, everything goes well. Sounds good. So we're going to let folks know one more time, youngpilots.org to donate or to follow Luke. And we will look for you along the route uh, that starts in or around uh, June the 8th. And it should take you about three weeks or so. We're thinking to get out to the West and then back to the East and folks could sponsor a leg or just donate a couple of bucks. And it's all going for a good cause. Either the AOPA, you can fly scholarships, Gary Sinise foundation or the Barstool Fund. So those are three really good organizations that could use those funds and, and, and help other people, not just aviators, but other people across the country. Luke, can I ask you a little bit about how other young folks like yourself can get a more diverse population interested in aviation? We have a little bit of a gender problem and maybe a little bit of a diversity problem as well. You know, how do you see that changing as a young person? What can we do to be to open our arms a little bit more? Well, I think that my generation, we benefit greatly when we build a a community of pilots in that we have we're generally just connected to more a a more diverse group of people. And there are fewer just sort of societal barriers to, to having people who aren't necessarily part of the traditional demographics for flying you know, we're much more able to, to connect with those people than, than previous generations have. You know, I, I maybe somewhat optimistically think that, you know, people of our generation, of my generation, the struggle of, of getting people, you know, uh, getting women, getting non-white people, black people, Latino people of all different kinds of, you know, different groups involved in aviation, it isn't so much of something of, a, of an outreach effort as it is of just having our community and inviting our friends into that community. And I think it really grows from there. And I, that's something that I think over time will get much better. I, you know, Young Pilots USA members are, we have a, a much higher uh, percentage of, of women pilots than the general population and just minority groups as well. 
something we're very proud of and something that we hope continues in the future. That's a good answer, Luke, and uh, something that we could all work on to help open our arms a little bit more to other folks. But that's really interesting that you mentioned that your generation has um, has a more diverse group of friends. And all you got to really do is, is ask your friends and ask your relatives into aviation and then sort of expose them because a lot of folks don't know about a potential aviation career. You've got your sights set on it, but some folks might not even know that that exists in the first place. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And that's, that's really what it is. And I, I mean, that, that's something that I like to encourage people of my generation who are interested in flying to do, but I think that applies to everyone. It's just, if you know someone who, you know, even shows just a little bit of that spark, just, you know, if you, you know, rent, you know, rent an airplane and go give them a ride or something like that, because that's, you know, that's really how you get people started. Luke, those are great answers about um, diversity. That's something that we really struggle with at AOPA. We are, we are proud of our You Can Fly folks, and there's the AOPA high school STEM curriculum. And right now, uh, that's, uh, we've got about 24% female uh, participation in that, which is uh, far and above what you find in the, you know, in commercial aviation in general. And we also have a, a pretty high percentile of folks who are racially diverse. And that's something that we've been struggling with and that we've been making great strides with. So we're going to hope that the, that we've opened the floor to you and your, you know, your generation, and you can continue to carry that torch forward. Well, I, I certainly, uh, I'm honored by the opportunity to do that. Um, and I, I think the, the future is definitely bright for young people getting involved in flying. All right, so it's a big country, David. It's 65 knots in a J3 Cub. It's going to take a long time to get there, Ian, uh, with Luke and his daddy. But here's the thing that I asked him over and over, you know, and he explained uh, during the interview. You know, he's not going to be on a super strict timetable. He's got to deviate for weather. He's got to have uh, some smartness involved. It will give him a ton of cross-country experience. And he is doing it for a good cause. I mean, these, you know, this, the scholarship situation, you know, the dedication to folks who have been affected by COVID. I mean, it's all for the right reasons. And youngpilots.org, the site that he started, really opens their arms to the next generation of young aviators. And he feels that this is another way to build a buzz around aviation. So, uh, you know, I wish him the best, and we'll we'll try to keep a. Uh, tabs on him and let y'all know how uh, November 7238 Hotel is doing. All right. Good luck, Luke. And uh, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk and wherever you get your Apple or Google podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.